I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't, please have a look at patreon.com slash Comes. Harry, which snacks will be fueling this cock-a-hoop celebration of our big 4-0? Well, I think I've got with me the most controversial piece of confectionery that's ever appeared on this podcast. is the coconut Kinder Bueno. Oh. I'm that Kinder Bueno sounds like a footballer. <laughs> the tricky Mexican winger who made such an impact at Villarreal, Kinder Bueno. Um, but anyway, the coconut Kinder Bueno, but my local paper, the Hexham Courant, had a story that led that shoppers were left furious following the release of the 49p bar and it's uh, at B&M. And it says, B&M has built a reputation as the go-to store for customers trying to find new chocolate bars. Well, how has it built that reputation, I wonder? Partly through the help of this podcast. But it's gone unacknowledged, hasn't it? Completely unacknowledged by B&M, unlike the good people of Tunnocks, who their graciousness. Anyway, you could learn something there, B&M marketing department, I reckon. Anyway, the, the coconut Kinder Bueno has, was not a success with some buyers. One social media user commented, why you got to ruin a perfectly decent bar? And another agreed, exactly. This has made me furious at the world. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, I did, eat, I did eat one before I came on air. Um, but it, 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 it filled me with neither rage nor delirium. Just a meagre sort of, there you go. Anyway, so there we are. So I've got that down. The, the, the controversial coconut Kinder Bueno. You wonder if you can be furious about the world at Coconut Bueno. Where, where do you go with your fury at pestilence and war and poverty and things? What do you get? Maybe you just shrug your shoulders. Maybe you just shrug, I think you just shrug those <laughs> off. You focus on the important things, Dan. People interfere. I mean, it's not even like it's not even like they've replaced the normal Kinder Bueno with the coconut one. You can still get the ordinary one. You can just ignore this one if you want to social media posters there's no need there's no need to whip yourself up into a froth of righteous fury 
<laughs> and the Northern League fixtures are here, as are other football league fixtures now. Any other excitement besides getting those or just the fixtures? Well, the fixtures are exciting. Obviously, um, Holden Colliery Welfare making a, a reappearance in the Northern League after a, a very sort of sad tale where they were kicked out of their own ground by the, by, because it belonged to the local council and they hadn't paid the rent. And so they were booted out of the fantastic welfare ground at Horden. Um, so Horden are back in the Northern League, which is also exciting because the railway station at Horden has been reopened by Northern Rail. Um, so you can actually get to Horden quite easily now without having to change buses at Peter Lee. People, people are listening to this all around the world going, well, that's really, that's really, that's really changed my life. Now I know I can get to Horden without changing buses with Peter Lee. Um, anyway, so away from that excitement, we did, we talked on the last podcast about clubs that had changed their nicknames, Palace from the Glaziers to the Eagles and Coventry to the Sky Blues from the Bantams. And as if by magic uh, or complete coincidence, someone posted on a Middlesbrough fan page on Facebook, a picture of a 1950s football annual that listed all the club nicknames of the league clubs at that time. And Brighton, who are now the Seagulls, of course, were then the Shrimps, and Colchester were the Oyster Men, and they're now the U's, like the, the letter U, not the female sheep. Which seems like a fa- it seems a bit of a failure of imagination. I'd much rather be named after an aphrodisiac shellfish than a letter of the alphabet. Wouldn't you? What do you Absolutely. think, Andy? Would you rather be named after an aphrodisiac shellfish or a letter uh, of the actually, alphabet? I'm, I'm actually quite fond of the alphabet. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. I, I, I do okay. quite like the alphabet. I've always because I know it. You know, I'm so familiar with. <laughs> You're it. familiar with it. Also, oysters. I, I, I've never liked. I never actually liked oysters. I can never really see the appeal of them. I must admit. Very good. Anyway, well, they were the oystermen, and Watford, now the Hornets, used to be the brewers. And that was because mm-hmm. the local brewery, Benskins, owned Vicarage Road at one time. So there we are. So that was so that was quite. And also, so they also the same uh, list had Middlesbrough listed as the Ironsides, which I don't don't remember at all. Although some <laughs> older older fans did remember that apparently. So that was some excitement. And I had also been further digging through my archive down, and I and I found um, the program for the Sunderland International Football Festival from 1991, oh. played last summer, uh, played in the summer of that year, and that featured under eighteen teams, uh, Feyenoord. Grasshopper, Zurich, Eintracht Frankfurt, Inter Milan, Real Madrid, Partizan Belgrade, Celtic, and Sunderland. Looking through the looking through the team sheets and the team photos, not many familiar or people who became famous later on, but in the Partizan Belgrade team, there is a particularly grumpy-looking Salvo Milosevic sort of glowering out at us. Um, the Sunderland team included Michael Gray and Craig Russell. But what I particularly like is that there's a quiz in it. At the, there's a half-time quiz, a traditional half-time quiz. And the question 10 is, who won the International Youth Festival held at Roker Park and Washington in 1972? And the answer is Burnley. You don't get much more international than that, do you? And any developments there, Andy? Uh, well, I saw a flock of parakeets by my flat. I know there are colonies of them in central London Park, supposedly bred from some captive ones that escaped a while ago like like the wallabies in the peak district you know but uh, it's the first time i've seen any here as this is Burmans, i wondered if they were maybe squawking like Millwall, or or if they've been taught <laughs> phrases about terry herlock but they weren't close enough for me to hear so i'll, I'll listen out for that though in the future sort of tough cockney parakeets they're probably about thir- if they are about third or fourth generation they may have decided to speak the local uh, lingo a bit more there's an all-weather football pitch outside my my block of flats here and uh, my balcony is around the halfway line and usually it's uh groups of kids playing i heard one of them shout 
I'm being Finland last week. This is after Finland's win in Denmark. It's maybe the first time anyone outside Finland has shouted that while playing football, I think. I've also been asked for betting advice in the Euros, but one of my uh, near neighbours who's not a football fan, who's thinking of they want to pick a winner. So I've suggested Italy, but I don't know if I'm on a percentage of, of the win should it happen. I, I maybe should have got that in writing first, but um, I hope they haven't bet their flat on it. I might have to go into hiding if so. <laughs> the parakeets does sound like a good football nickname, actually, doesn't it? If a club wanted to change theirs to that, that's it. Did, well, they could do. They'll probably have changed it from that. Someone will have yeah. changed it from the parakeets <laughs> to the to the A's. Well, the, the myth, and this this may be a myth about the, the the parakeets that got released in central London, was that Jimi Hendrix had two pet parakeets, and he lived somewhere near maybe Hyde Park or overlooking a park, and they either released them or they escaped, and they went on to to produce a whole colony and they've spread out since. But I've not seen any, I've lived here for over 20 years, I've not seen any here before, but so maybe they're just moving around. Maybe, maybe it's an effect of lockdown. You, know, just you, could, get, you, you, could, but you should play Purple Haze very loudly and if any of the parakeets set fire so to anything. If, if anyone goes <laughs> daddy or something, or, grand, <laughs> or <laughs> great granddad or whatever, then yeah. Just going back a couple of minutes to the nickname. So Brighton were called the Shrimps. They were called the Shrimps. They were called the Shrimps, yeah. And now the Seagulls. Also, we, on the subject of Seagulls, I did also remember that um, just before lockdown, Queen of the South uh, warned their fans that any of them who were found feeding seagulls in Palmerston Park would be banned because oh. seagulls have been, become such a menace to the, to the people locally. Um, so, uh, yeah. But, yes, Brighton were, yes, Brighton were, the, were the shrimps. And I wonder if, if Southend were the shrimpers. I guess they were more shrimpy, so they got to be the shrimpers. There's a difference between a shrimp and a shrimper. That's true. As there is between a fish and a fisherman. Yeah. <laughs> sort of like something that, some of those sort of wise Chinese sayings that, that would, have, would have appeared in Kung Fu. As Confucius said. Yeah. The South End mascot, which is meant to be shrimp, looks like something from H.P. Lovecraft. It's a terrifying thing. It's an enormous big shrimp type thing, but it looks like it's come from a. It's come from another dimension with evil on its mind. I think. I think that, that's what that that would be a good nickname. Actually, South End should change their nickname to the Old Ones. Yeah. Well, I've watched the wonderful 2004 film Millions, in which one little boy sells another boy, Don Revie and Malcolm Allison figurines, which took me quite surprised because it was set in the early 21st century. So I'd love to know if such things did exist and what they would be like. A Malcolm Allison figurine is a must-have thing. I will be trawling eBay for one. And of course, watching some of the European championships and a particular highlight for me was my sister who lives in Prague and speaks Czech, sending me some translations of Czech Republic player names. So David Zima is David Winter. Alex Kral is Alex King. Fairly normal stuff there. But Lucas Massapust is Lucas Carnival, which is wonderful. Anthony <laughs> Barrack is Anthony Barracks. Michael Kremenchik is Michael Fee. Magic Vidra is Matthew Otter, which is a beautiful one as well. Mm. <laughs> More of those, please, from multilingual listeners. Harry, what have your own Euro observations been so well, far? Well, it's funny you say that because my, the, my, my friend Andre, who is Czech, or is Czech still, <laughs> hasn't, changed, <laughs> hasn't changed where he was born mysteriously. Um, he often used to do that. And I think there was a Czech player in the 1980s, one of their better players, whose nickname translated as Little Button. It might have been Ivo Knoflicek. You'll have to check with your sister. I will. There was a lot of checks in that sentence. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, the, but that thing with the translation of names is sometimes if you do Google Translate on a on a you know a football article, it translates the name. So if you do it with German, like I remember doing it once, and Franz Beckenbauer was translated as Fran Francis Basin Farmer, <laughs> um, which presumably meant farming farming in a in a valley rather than actually farming sinks, which would be quite a tricky operation. And of course, Sebastian Schweinsteiger, whose name. S seems to mean pig climber, but I think Uli Hesse 
um, when Saturday Comes Contributor has explained at great length that it actually means a place on a hill where pigs are kept or something like that. But it does it does literally translate as pig climber. Pig steward, I think. Something like pig that. steward. Yeah, I think I think it's still probably, a strange probably, name. You probably get an overcoat, an overcoat without emblazoned on it. I think if, if you're in that line of work, <laughs> pig steward, indeed. Well, no, Hungarians are quite big on occupational surnames. There are loads of very common occupational surnames. And I remember looking up. I discovered a little while ago, Tibor Nilash, who's their kind of star player in the seventies and eighties. He played in a couple of World Cups. Got sent off against Argentina in seventy eight. His surname means archer, and I looked up uh, one of the teams he was played. One of the Hungarian. Um, lineups he was in um to and, and i put some of the names to google translate and also in that team were players called potter butcher plowman and blacksmith it sounds like episodes of camberwick green or, or <laughs> trumpton for the for the younger <laughs> for the younger <laughs> listeners <laughs> What else have you enjoyed in the Yaros, Harry? Well, I've been watching the last few nights. Of the, I've been watching with my daughter, Maisie, who not, doesn't really follow football very much. So I've been interested in her observations on the, as a, tw- a 25-year-old who doesn't really follow football. And one of the things that she pointed out is that the footballers either look very young or very old. And Luke Shaw, who is actually exactly the same age as her, practically to the month, actually looks old enough to be her dad. Um, although not as old as her actual dad, obviously. Um, and also, you know, Carl Walker as well, age 31. And my daughter said, looked like an angry TV chef. <laughs> He's 31, but could be he could be easily be 50. And <laughs> then what's going on with him? So, yes, I've been enjoying that. I've also obviously enjoyed the, the, the sheer speed with which England can move the ball from the edge of the opposition penalty area back to Jordan Pickford. Absolutely <laughs> masterful. You, be, you, you know, just... I don't know, like Raheem Sterling's just approaching the edge of the D and before you can even say, get a shot in, it's back with our goalkeeper. It's you know, it's a masterpiece from, from Gareth Southgate, which of course prepared, we're prepared for, having seen yes. him in charge of Middlesbrough, aren't we? He's, he's, he always sets out first to quiet the crowd, especially when playing at home. <laughs> You've been enjoying the Euros, Andy? Yes, well, uh, first I should uh, share two, because um, I'm in you know, the media business, two press releases I need to share with you. Uh, mm. One f- we had yesterday from a PR firm sent us what they called a fan banter translator, which is a list <laughs> of fo- favourite football phrases translated into other languages. That says, if you're, looking to, uh, if you're looking to impress, you can use them while attending a match from people with the many vibrant, people from the many vibrant European cities in which the tournament is being held. So these phrases, which are also translated into Spanish, Russian, Italian, so on. That one is nutmeg with an exclamation mark. Ooh. He's the target man. They've downed tools. He <laughs> scored a brace, and the counter attack is on. Now it's been a while since I was in the crowd at football match. I think probably twenty nineteen, but I don't recall hearing many of those. But my my memories is not is not what it was. But he scored a brace. Is a bit nineteen thirties. Like what we need is a is a tip top wing half kind of thing, isn't it? Um, the other one is from from Bovril, um, and this is uh, talking about Lovecraft uh, apparitions and horror. Really, this is a, a, to me is a horrific thing. Bovril are marketing a limited edition beef ice lolly. So essentially cold beef, frozen beef, um, which is apparently to be given out as a promotion before England's next game. And they say the 2021 Euros are heating up and to cool things down a bit, we're subbing in a never-before-seen Bovril beef ice lolly. 
my voice is rising though it's an exclamation Ooh. mark at the end of that sentence i'm talking <laughs> about this commensurate with the punctuation um it's a limited run of the new of the exclusive new popsicle will be handed out before lick off next tuesday so we get all the best press releases, but plus those, plus those two, obviously, as well. Um, I, hope the, I hope the man who was, who was furious at the world over the coconut Kinder Bueno doesn't see that. Well, I don't know. God. I'll have to take that. But keep, keep cutlery away from him. But, you know, I've, I've, um, I've enjoyed it overall. And the last round of matches in the group stage are always good. I and mean, we know we knew beforehand there really aren't 24 good international teams in Europe. I mean, there aren't even 16. But we're sort of stuck with this now, like this kind of parade of mostly kind of bog standardness forever now 24 teams in the euros and then god help us 48 in the world cup so there are going to be a lot of a lot of there's going to be a lot of tedium but it is also nice that games that don't promise much that turn out to be okay i mean i i I was like austria versus north macedonia for example was quite good and i did quite enjoy spain's struggles to get the this second generation Tiki tacker going. I mean, the, the pundits kind of said, oh, "Of course, they're, they're so much better than their opponents because you have to prove that by winning." Which, admittedly, they did in the in the final game. But they've gone off Spain quite a bit lately. Actually, there seemed to be widespread support in the media there, and they, amongst some fans as well for the for the European Super League idea. So I'm, I'm kind of uh, I'm a bit down on them. Sam Matterface, and not 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 the greatest um, uh, high profile football commenter there's ever been. I don't think somebody noted that he said after one of Italy's goals against Switzerland. It's the eternal city, and they'll be talking about that goal forever. <laughs> Which sounds like a curse, doesn't it, really? <laughs> the Emma Hayes uh, on, on ITV has been very good as a co-commentator, I think. Very good on explaining, which a lot of co-commentators really don't, why teams are playing you know, why the way they do or why, the, why they try to do things differently. And rather than just you know, reacting to events or, or, or trying to make jokes, you know, as, as so many mm-hmm. of them do. Um, or not even trying to do anything very much like Danny Murphy, who just seems so bored all the time. <laughs> and, and Harry Harry Kane, as as you know, Harry Kane has to play. It doesn't matter whether he's fit or not. He's talismanic, as Gareth Southgate said, like a like a fetish symbol, like a sort of a, a, a magic bean in an amulet around Gareth's neck. <laughs> Yeah, I think the thing with Sam, Sam Matterface, who you mentioned there, that he he also said when when Belgium scored, he said Lukaku speaks the language of goals and he feeds off them, <laughs> so, so, which was really worthy of David Coleman. When I heard it, I thought that's the first time I've heard a commentator make something where I thought Coleman could have said that. Very rare. I mean, it sounded like it'd been scripted by Amanda Unici. I mean, not a man who not only speaks, he doesn't even he doesn't speak goals, but he eats them as well. How would that be a thing that you could eat the language that you speak? I don't know. It's like in a parallel world. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, no, he's been mesmerising. But you're right about Emma Hayes. She's actually very, very good. And they explained about defenders altering their body shape to prevent to prevent conceding corners in one game, which you just sort of thought, well, oh, I've actually learned something about football from a pundit. Who would think it? I wonder if it's that the regular pundits or co-commentators just assume people know that stuff already. I don't know what, why they don't tell us. There's also, I've noticed the phrase... That's been used a bit this time, which is um, low block. Have you noticed that low block? Frank Lampard was talking about it last night, and Jermaine Genesis said that. I think it means when teams are defending deep, or they've got a lot of players in, like kind of in the you know the banks of four, but they've got a low block. That's mm. that's the new. That's the new. That's the. That's a new. Thing. That's a new buzz. A new buzzword. Yeah. I need some kind of pundit banter thing like that press release to explain yeah. to me such things as transitions which i can guess what it means but it's just oh they're good in the transition the pr people in that banter thing had maybe been watching melchester rovers <laughs> well, that's the sort of thing the crowd say at their games surely you bag a brace as well just not to go back too you bag far a, but bag a, a brace, brace is always indeed, bagged. yes Come he's on. bagged a brace it's more of a cricket thing <laughs> <laughs>
I would have thought. <laughs> anyway, on the pundit front, my favourite Jermaine Jenis one I've heard so far was when I can't remember who even passed the ball, but he said, "I can't tell you how good that pass is," and I thought that's <laughs> actually your job to tell me how good that pass is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think D- Danny Murphy said last night, one of the French players, that's what he does. He runs with the ball. <laughs> what? The, the one I've heard most this time is he knows where the goal is. Just in, ne- in nearly every game, and it makes you think about what's the opposite. Just a player who doesn't know where the goal is and wanders around <laughs> looking like a man searching for harissa in farm foods or something. <laughs> it's just such a weird phrase. Yeah, he knows where the goal is. <laughs> you think that would be the minimum requirement of a player, wouldn't you? <laughs> Harry, you've noticed as well that commentators seem to have to tell you when someone once played five games on loan to Norwich at some point. Yeah, there's like, I have to say, like he had an, had an unhappy spell at Bristol, with Bristol City. And I did wonder, you know, when you listen to it, you wonder if commentators all over the, you know, all over Europe are doing, all the rest of it, sorry, continental Europe, we should say, are doing the same thing, you know, sort of like John Stone, you know, once linked with Chamois Neotes, something like that, you know. Are they similarly obsessed with this local angle? But the, the strange thing with that is that some of the players as well, I don't know if it's, I don't know if other fans of other teams feel the same way. You know, watching Martin Brathwaite the other day, you know, you just, you're like, is that, is that the guy? Is that the guy who played for Middlesbrough? This dynamic player sort of tearing, tearing the Russian defence apart? Is this, is this, is this the man we put, we sent out on loan to Bordeaux? And I guess mm-hmm. other people, I mean, Swansea fans must, must feel similarly. Renato Sanchez, who was absolutely fantastic for Portugal against France, you know, and he, he was, he was, Terrible for Swansea. I mean, it was, I think it substituted at half time. It couldn't seem to find a teammate with a pass at one time. So you do sort of wonder what you know. Are these? But are these actually the same people? <laughs> well, somehow English clubs don't seem to work out how to get the best out of the players. It's kind of a no. That, that thing, could be it? the other thing. Well, yeah. well the classic <laughs> well, that was was John Tal, John Dahl Thomason, wasn't it? He had one season at Newcastle where he he's played as a striker. Admittedly, he was really more of an attacking midfielder, I think. But he had a long career in Europe after. He played in played for Denmark in Euros and in World Cups. He played at Feyenoord and AC Milan, but he, it didn't work at all at Newcastle. Yeah, well, I actually remember being on a trip somewhere, and, you, and, I, and I put Eurosport on, and Feyenoord were playing, and they kept saying to, uh, John Dahl Thomason, and I, I, I was watching this guy play, thinking, "Oh, that's really weird. That guy's got the same name as that useless guy who played for Newcastle." <laughs> yeah. It took me about it took me half, half a game to realise that it was the same bloke because he was so good. He was a really, really good player. I think he, I think at Newcastle, did somebody get injured. Maybe Les Ferdinand was injured. I think and. One of the strikers, I don't know if Shearer was still there, and he was played more as a central striker, which really wasn't his position, I think. Yeah, he actually played sort of behind the strikers, didn't he? But he was played as a, as a sort of goal, an out-and-out an out out goal scorer, a man who knew where the goal was. Yeah. There's also Darko Kovacevic, who, who played for Serbia Montenegro. Sheffield Wednesday had a, a brief and very unsuccessful spell at Sheffield Wednesday to the extent he's even turned up on some of those, you know, worst ever Premier League signings kind of lists. Um, and, but... He played at the 98 World Cup and Euros 2000, I think. But then he moved to Real Sociedad, where he was a big success. And he was, a, I think, two spots there. And he played for Juventus as well. It's a bit like with, with Tomás. And obviously, these clubs somehow able to get something out of uh, out of these players that the English club uh, uh, bizarrely didn't, mysteriously didn't. <laughs> it's strange that that should happen. Yeah. I think I've worked out the thing with Brathwaite. It's that we all called him Martin Braithwaite. And he was obviously really surly about that and decided. Well, it doesn't not to sound try. as good, does it? It doesn't sound as dynamic, Martin Braithwaite. <laughs> no. It sounds like a man who comes around to do a tax audit. Of course, the highlight of the tournament was before the whole thing began with the car, the remote control car, carrying the match ball onto the pitch. Completely delightful, I thought. 
Although it, it must have been really tempting if you if you were in charge of the remote control, the radio controlled car, to just send it zooming off in a different direction, wasn't it? <laughs> I always like it that when the, when the referees come out of the tunnel and they pick the ball up off that plinth, I always imagine a, a huge alarm's going to go off, like in Mission Impossible. <laughs> I think the ref should actually be lowered down, like Tom Cruise, on a special piece of wire and lift it off, so as not to say it does. It does look like it'll trigger an alarm if you know if the wrong person. If the wrong person plucked the ball off the plinth, if one of the linesmen did it, maybe maybe an alarm would go off. We need to see that. news and we can only apologise listeners for that. I noticed the St Johnston manager Callum Davidson broke the course record at Dunblane Golf Club and that was after winning two cups for the Saints this season. He was also a brilliant tennis player as a kid, friend of the, the Murray brothers. So I think it's time to dust down those footballers who were good at other sport anecdotes. Andy, who does that bring to mind? Well, with tennis, actually, Gordon Hill, uh, later to be Man United and England winger and, and one of those 1970s players that we mentioned before, known f- for doing uh, Norman Wisdom impressions. Um, but he'd been a very good junior tennis player. And when he started out at Millwall, there's a bit in Naaman Dumfries' book about Millwall in the mid-70s, 73, 74, where the Millwall players who'd, who'd found Hill, he's a teenager at the time, found him just a bit too chirpy, I think. And having having spent the majority of my life now in London, people are a bit too ch- chirpy I can, can they can wear you down I think um they suggested to him playing an imaginary tennis match in a hotel he, he, he had tennis kit with him and he had a racket but he didn't have any tennis balls I think and there were obviously no net so that, I think he was playing supposedly playing a match against a Millwall goalkeeper and one of the, the um, players offered to be umpire so they played this sort of invisible tennis, but um, the player who was the umpire kept calling Hill's shots out and he kept protesting about it in this sort of <laughs> proto-McEnroe way. And they, they couldn't believe how easy it was to, to wind up. Though somehow, I don't know, there's something about his his irrepressible normal wisdom impressions that does lead you to think he was somebody who you could actually wind up quite a bit. Um, Julian Dix tried to make a go of a career as a golfer. During that, I don't know what it's called, the secondary golf tour. He didn't move up to the European tour, but he was on this, like, the qualifying thing tour. Um, but perhaps he just kind of, you know, kept putting in reducers on his opponents, you know, shoulder barging people into a water hazard or something, let, let them know he was there early on and they, they, they took, <laughs> took a dim view of it. Um, the Neville brothers are both good cricketers, I think, uh, as was Jeff Hurst, who played uh, for Essex once as a as a batsman of course there used to be loads of football and cricketers and there were also of course a few who were really cricketers first I remember um Alex Stock who's a, the, the the model for uh, for Ron Manager um who was then manager of Bournemouth being asked about Ian Botham who just made his league debut for Scunthorpe uh, as a sub against Bournemouth I remember Scott Stock saying as a footballer well you know he's, he's a very good bowler isn't he condemning with faint praise kind of way um there's also i've mentioned this before but i I just quite like it as a fact um simon agdestein who was a dual international for norway he was a striker for norway in the 80s and 90s and uh chess he he, uh, is chess a sport probably not but i quite like i just quite like this this kind of this fact um 
His career, football career ended in the early 90s due to knee injuries, but he's since uh, represented Norway at the, at the Chess Olympiad. So if the, if the Chess Olympiad also has a football tournament, I imagine he'd be, he'd be captaining uh, the winning team. There's several Russian players have also played ice hockey and football. And um, James Vaughan, who retired recently, he'd been a very good rugby league player when he was a teenager. His dad had been a rugby union player. Had also been was the third fastest 13-year-old in the UK in the 100 metres. When when, so perhaps he could have gone on to an athletics career. And Harry? Well, I think you mentioned that uh, Lev Yashin, I think, also. Did he play? I think he, I think he, won, I think he won championships in, in the Soviet Union at football and ice hockey because he was an ice hockey goalkeeper too. Um, so he might have done that. I was thinking there was someone else famous who was an ice hockey goalkeeper, another footballer who was famous, and then I realised it wasn't. It was actually the actor James Robertson Justice. Oh yes, he <laughs> was yeah. who played played quite high level ice hockey. Nothing connected with football there, so we're back on track. <laughs> he also served in the volunteered in the Spanish Civil War. Just to... he, was a, he was a fine fellow. I don't know why I found myself reading a th- reading a, reading an obituary of him, and he was actually really amazing. He stood as a Labour candidate in the 45 general election yeah. as well. Yeah, and I think he probably, if he played football, he would have been very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a car on our street that makes a noise just like the first peeps of the toot suite in Chitty Bang Bang, and I always think he's going to walk around the corner in a jolly striped suit and sing, but it's not, not oh, happened yet. I wonder who he supported. Anyway, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so you mentioned the football. I think Willie Watson, he was, I think he was the last double international played for Sunderland and Yorkshire and England at football and, and cricket. Probably back in Edwardian times, there were lots of these sort of great all-round sports when people would think of C.B. Fry, who, you know, as well as playing football and cricket for England, I think he held the world long jump record. He also had a party piece, which was to jump backwards onto a, onto a mantelpiece. And he uh, expressed support for Hitler as well. Uh, not while not while jumping onto the mantelpiece, or perhaps <laughs> perhaps while doing it, um, which he later regretted. After he did retract, he did regret it later on, and said he, he said he got it all wrong. Nazi Germany wasn't quite the happy holiday camp he thought it was when he went there. Um, but the person who really stands out is um, Reginald Tip Foster, Ari Foster. He's the only man ever to captain England at football and cricket. Uh, he was also a scratch golfer, and I think he might have been British rackets champion as well, one of those sports that only public schools play, of course. He was a contemporary of C.B. Fry and a friend of C.B. Fry. He scored 287 on his test debut versus Australia and also got a double hat-trick against Germany at White Hart Lane in 1901. And the most extraordinary thing about him was that he died at the age of 36 because he was a, suffered from diabetes, and it was in the days before insulin. So you can only imagine what he'd have achieved if he'd been at peak health. Jackpot ticket, pound a goal. Draw it half time. Five hundred pound prize draw. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Your hats and scarves and pin badges. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Pin badges, hats, scarves, hats and scarves and pin badges. Program. 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 Subscribe to when Saturday comes, and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in one hundred percent recyclable wrapping which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and T-shirts, and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk. Jackpot ticket, pound a go, draw it half time, 500 pounds, yours to take on tonight. Issue 411 of When Saturday Comes is out now, and the letters pages are once again full of intrigue. Which letters did you enjoy in particular this time, Andy? 
Uh, well, one from Mark Weeks, who lives in Porto, in our continuing uh, Lettuce Page series about playing with former players. He plays in a six-a-side team on a Friday evening at an international school in, in Porto. And he says, at times we've supplemented teachers with parents or, in, or, or invited friends. Most regular of these is Boa Vista's manager in their championship season, former Portugal international Jaime Pacheco. He's a nice man. However, we've had to take the very teacherly action of banning him twice for extended periods of time due to persistent ungentlemanly conduct, <laughs> off-the-ball heckling, unsporting calls, deliberate handball and the like. From Russell Harper, um, uh, on the uh, long-running uh, saga of, of spotting uh, footballers in the street, uh, he says, a couple of years ago, I saw Dean Holdsworth in a chip shop in Droitwich Spa. I felt obliged to say, are you Dean Holdsworth? And he replied, no, I'm David. Dean's my brother. I mulled it over in a state of confusion, and while he gathered up his, his kebab and made for an accident, a few, a few months later I saw him again, realised it was Dean, and he'd been having me on. He saw him again in the, in the, in the town nearby where Dean uh, lives, so he, he was convinced it must have been Dean. Now, how annoying it must be, though, I think, to be a, the identical twin of, a, of a, a well-known person or a better-known person in general. You know, boxer Henry Cooper had a twin, uh, George, who had also been a boxer, I think. But do you... Do you give up sometimes and just sign autographs as if you're the famous one rather than trying to explain, especially if, if they if it's not widely known that, you know, that they have a twin? Because you're going to sound like an arsehole, aren't you? You're going to say, no, no, I'm not me. I'm I'm the twin you've never heard of. Kind of <laughs> and Harry, the lettuce pages? Oh, wait, I liked, uh, there was a letter from Carl Shunman from Chessant on the pointless shouting of time by, uh, by, uh, by players, he said, in parks, where it doesn't really matter if they've got time because they haven't got the ball skills to exploit it. This was in uh, response to, the I think, the goalkeepers shouting away all the time. And I would add to that, that whenever uh, whenever an, op- an, op- you know, an opposition player gets the ball in the penalty box, it's, it's almost one, one defender will always shout out, don't foul. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I can never understand. That is like that's a bit like knowing where the goal is. Like, don't foul a shout. It's a bit like in cricket when they shout out "catch, catch it." I mean, what would the fielder do? You know, if, if we really need, if we really need telling, that's what you need to do. You shouldn't probably be on the field. So yeah, don't foul on that. And uh, Neil Jackson from Astley. Um, had a, a letter which he suggested the teams fielding 12 men as a form of handicapping system in the Premier League, talking about Burnley and how they might have, might, might have altered their formation, which I think is a good idea. I remember when you when you used to um, play sort of pick-up football as a kid, and you, know, you had two captains who picked who took turns picking a player. At the end, it would always get to a sort of divvying out of, and it would be like, well, well, we'll have you know we'll have fat Kevin, and you can have the three little kids. And I think that might be a thing that you could do, where a team would say instead of playing four adult defenders, we'll play twelve primary school kids who will just run around the field all all afternoons, shrieking in high pitched voices. So I think that's a, I think that's a good idea. Andy, tell us about some of the other content in issue four hundred and eleven. Uh, well, the match of the month feature this time is by my colleague Fionn Thomas about the, the Wembley Cup final doubleheader, the FA Trophy and the FA Vars being played on the same day, which has happened for a few years now. And um, the 2019 20 finals of both these have been played at Wembley three weeks early, but with no fans present. But for, for, this, for these two, there were 9,000 people allowed in across the two matches. Uh, Warrington Rylands beat uh, Binfield in the, the Vars in normal time. I think was hoping for extra time because there's then an hour to wait for the next game. And there was a, <laughs> then a, a major shock in the trophy final. Horn, Hornchurch from the Eastman League beat uh, beat Hereford from the National League at one level up. Some Hornchurch fans have on have scarves that say, we're just a pub team from Hornchurch. <laughs> Which, uh, I don't know. Then uh, there's quite a timely piece, actually, in the wake of what happened to Christian Eriksen at the Euros. Um 
on a campaign for footballers to be screened for cardiac problems. This is led by a non-league club, Tunbridge, who had a player who was on trial with them who collapsed and died at a game in 2015. And have since had another of their players die of, of a cardiac arrest in a, in a six-a-side game in, in 2019. So this is obviously a, you know, a huge issue and, um, and something that I think the club has, has gone involved with and they would like to see uh, further action by the football authorities in, in having screening tests for, for players. Um, there's a piece by Tony Curran about the strange fading of Joe Hart's career when he might have been expected to still be involved in top-level football. And he's 34, not that old for a goalkeeper. He now hasn't played a first-team game for two years. I mean, he's currently uh, reserve at Spurs. I don't know if, if the, the new Spurs manager, whoever that's going to be, and they've already gone through about six different possibles, is going to keep him on as the, as the sort of third-choice keeper. And we've got pieces on Brentford and St. Johnston, who've both just had probably the well, the, the best ever season in the lives of, of any of the supporters, I think. St. Johnson with a cup double and Brentford um, getting promoted back to the, the top division, which they left in the first post-war season, 1946-47. And uh, Brentford fan Dermot Kavanagh says after the playoff uh, win over Swansea, he went back to take uh, one final look at Griffin Park. And he, as he says, boarded up with the old Ealing Road home end completely vanished. It was still recognisable in glimpses with its peeling red painted girders and floodlights sprouting above the low rooftops that surround the ground. And uh, Archie McGregor says, Love St. Johnston, that their the success, he thinks, can be traced back really a long time to the owners, the Brown family, getting involved when the club were bottom of Division 2, the then Division 2, in 1988. And they've always tried to keep the club debt-free. As, as he says, it's been less a case of having a sugar daddy, more a curmudgeonly parent who feels a deep sense of resentment at the very thought of handing over pocket money. What shall I call him about this month, Harry? Well, a bit, uh, maybe a bit influenced by Andy reading out Yuri Geller's letter from the, from the last <laughs> podcast, possibly telepathically. It's about, it's about the conspiracy theory of the based on the the two Paul McCartney's conspiracy theory that says that Paul McCartney died in 1966 in a car crash and was replaced by a lookalike. I've often thought that I mean a bit uh, what we were talking about earlier about Martin Braithwaite and Martin Brathwaite. That sometimes you see a player and you think he seems a completely different player from when he was at X Club. Um, and I wonder if there's a simple explanation for that and that he actually is a completely different player. Maybe we did have Martin Braithwaite from the tax office and the actual, <laughs> and the, while the actual Martin Brathwaite was doing something else with his life. So that's what it's about, really. The idea that, the idea that some players where their career seems, to, seems transformed after a transfer, that maybe actually what's happened is they've just been replaced with a lookalike by then and one last when Saturday comes question for Andy if the World Cup does keep expanding so that every country in the world does end up qualifying how big is the wall chart going to be it's just a billboard maybe a, a take home billboard you, you, it'll have to be a spread out down the side of a block of flats I think like some <laughs> like some and all, like one of those Christo was that guy Christo used to wrap buildings in in um in policy yeah. and stuff yeah one of uh, an enormous uh, mural doesn't bear thinking about. You have to fill it in. You have to fill it in with a with a you know sort of a big paintbrush, like a sort of yeah, that'd be good. Or you, yeah, you might need a helicopter. You go up there in a helicopter and kind of lean out of the helicopter and fill it in <laughs> with an aerosol spray. Yeah, you have to do that. time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website 45football.com andy 
What have you picked this time? Oh, I've got a song from Euro 80. What is het best voetbal land? What is the best football land by the Dutch national squad? Um, they answer their own question by saying the Netherlands, but as the 45football.com fella points out, the answer in 1980 was actually Germany. Holland didn't get out of the group. And this would actually be Holland's last appearance at a major final for, for eight years. And when they came back, they won their only major tournament to date to Euro 88. And the Dutch squad included a player, Martin Vrijsen, who's a forward from NAC Brady, who's playing, played his only international match at this tournament. He started their first game against Greece, having not played in any of the warm-up games. He was substituted at half-time, was never capped again. So he must have been thinking, great, international football, here I come, but he only got 45 minutes. So um, at the, spare a thought for him when you, while you listen to, um, to this, what is the best football land. choice this time i've gone i can't really pronounce this i wish i hadn't chosen it now and now as i look at it written down there's a huge number of vowels in it it's um who's gone who i believe in the eurasian eagle owls i think we could i think we can translate it as it's the uh, by rock siltanen and it's a it's a celebration of the finnish national team sorry to see them go out as indeed was that small boy who who, who lives near yes. andy um but they did you know they played their part in a fantastic night of football i think the, the denmark russia game and the belgium finland game going on simultaneously were really fantastic um so they played their part in this and of course um finland are nicknamed they are actually nicknamed the the eagle owls and not just the owls they're the eagle owls very specific which i like i think mean, i think you know sheffield wednesday just a generic owl I think they should really focus on what sort of owl they are. Um, like a barn owl, a long-eared owl at all. And there's lots of owls they could be, but not just an owl. You know. Anyway, so they're the Eurasian eagle owls, and uh, this actually the, the nickname actually has a has an origin. It has an origin story, which is good. In it was in 2007 when Finland were playing Belgium, and they, the, in the Olympic Stadium in Helsinki, and the game was interrupted by an, a Eurasian eagle owl, which flew into the stadium. And landed on the pitch for a while and actually interrupted the game. But for, the game was disrupted by, for six minutes, I think, while the owl flew around until it finally got bored and flew away. And the owl made such an impact that it was actually named as Helsinki's Citizen of the Year for 2007. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so this song celebrates Finnish football and and the Eurasian eagle owl. It's by a man called Rock Siltanen, a rather severe-looking bearded man. And it's a sort of synth-pop track that sounds like the sort of thing that Molly Ringwald had danced around to in a John Hughes movie. And none the worse for that, I say. For my own choice this time, I wanted to find, for no reason at all, a record from the smallest territory on 45football.com, and I came across a record from the tiny Italian and beautiful island of Ischia. So it's Forza Ischia about SS Ischia by the Snobs. I didn't expect to find a group associated with Ischia called the Snobs, but there you are, Forza Ischia. <laughs> 
Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, I was joined by Ed Bridges from the Newport County podcast, 1912 Exiles. Ed, I should say welcome back to When Saturday Comes because you've prior experience helping us out, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Um, I'm not sure it features... Uh, in the When Saturday Comes history books, but um, I did do work experience at When Saturday Comes in, I think, the summer of 2000, um, where I was allowed to write daily news articles for the um, nascent WSC website during the mornings in exchange for doing uh, filing and admin duties during the afternoons. And, and my abiding memories of the two weeks that I was there were um, of sitting in the rather dark and untidy offices off Kingsland Road um, listening to middle-aged blokes grumbling about football whilst chain smoking. Um, I loved every single second of it. And I think my professional life ever since has been something of an anti-climax. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> okay, then tell me about 1912 Exiles, when and why it started and what you've done and do. So it all began, I think, back in late 2017, early 2018 by uh, Rhys Warren, who is still very much the granddaddy of the pod and a regular contributor um, to fill a bit of a void, really, in fan-led content for Newport County. Um, and Reese did, I think, a dozen episodes by himself and gradually it's grown and we now have a pool of five regular contributors to to share the load. Um, I don't think there's really been much of a culture in recent years, at least, of fanzine, uh, fanzine culture at Newport County, although we have got a, a vibrant message board that's been in place since our Conference South days. Uh, and Jack, the man behind that, is one of our regular and more provocative contributors. Um, and I mean, we although... As contributors, we've never really spoken about it. I think we would probably trace the the podcast's kind of heritage back to that fanzine culture and things like WSC, because, you know, we want there to be considered and well-articulated views of what's happening at our club, but with room for irreverence and some mickey-taking as well. And I guess our view is that um, if people within the club think that we're a bit too negative and some of the fans think that we're a bit too sycophantic, that probably means that we get the tone about right for the majority of people who are kind of stuck in the middle. Um, I, I guess the other thing to say is that we're really conscious of the dynamic that we're a fan-owned club. And so when we do criticise uh, the board or the people running the club, we, we know that we're criticising our own and we're criticising people who are giving up their time for free, like we are, but probably for a more noble cause. And so that means that we try to be quite constructive with it. Um, and yeah, I mean, whilst we don't have a, a huge audience for the pod, um, we're not a huge club. Um, but like the club's attendances, the podcast, I think, is growing a little bit. We we did 20 episodes this season, which is no mean feat, given that we haven't been able to go to get, go to games and we've all got full-time jobs um, and, and yeah I guess going forward we probably need to make it a bit more diverse because five middle-aged white blokes doesn't really reflect the club's wider fan base um, so yeah building a, a bigger pool of a bigger pool of contributors next season um, is, is probably on the to-do list. Now I can't speak to a Newport fan as the podcast with me and Harry Pearson on it without asking whose is the best transporter bridge Middlesbrough's or Newport's? Well, uh, of course, the clubs met in the FA Cup fourth round in uh, in 2019. And um, after a, a battling draw at the Riverside County, won the replay 2-0, I'm obliged to add. Um, and as part of the build-up to that game, there was a lot of talk about it being the, the Transporter Bridge derby. 
Um, I, I mean, in terms of which is best, I think the Middlesbrough one is probably bigger. Um, but, you know, size isn't everything, as I always say. And um, I, I've walked across Newport's one a few times um, and there's a certain Victorian charm to it. And plus, um, there's there's a nature reserve at one end of it, which I think is pretty cool. So um, I think a little bit like in, in the FA Cup uh, tie between the two, it, it's, it's a close affair, but County will probably just win out in the end. <laughs> On to your own supporting life then. When did you start going to watch them and why and you know, your first games and all the rest of it? Yeah, so I'm I'm not originally from Newport. Um I grew up in Oxford um and was an Oxford United season ticket holder, but then I came to South Wales to study about twenty years ago. Um and I tried to keep going back to watch my uh, my hometown team but it was clear that I was going to bankrupt myself if I kept it kept it going so um, I think in about 2004 I um, adopted Newport as my local side when we were playing in um, Conference South and getting crowds of 700 800 um, and they had a very generous student discount which is probably what um, what enticed me in um, and my first game was a real humdinger of a cup replay where we beat North Lee 6-2 on a rainy Tuesday night um, and and that kind of uh, sparked something within me and I, I kept going back after that and yeah since then my my two sons have grown up supporting county uh, and of course it helps that in the 17 years that I've been going along to watch them Newport have gone from strength to strength they've won two promotions and had five Wembley appearances in that time um, and you know we've not been relegated since 1996 so we're we're kind of on the up and up really which definitely helps. Mm. So it's a difficult question next what have been the worst of times despite that up and up yeah well we like yeah we've definitely been spoiled in recent years and I think younger county fans don't realize how lucky they are in in recent memory I guess 2017 uh, when we came very very close to relegation we were 11 points adrift with 12 games left uh, only for Mike Flynn to work a miracle and keep us up on the very last day of the season at Hartlepool's expense um but you know, obviously, if you go back just a little bit further, um, the worst of times for County were very, very dark indeed. Um, after the original club went bust in 1989, um, and then had to reform and play in exile at Morton in Marsh and later at Gloucester City, um, because the the FAW Football Association of Wales refused to allow us to play in Wales unless we went into the Welsh leagues, which Newport fans refused to do because we'd always played within the English pyramid. And so, yeah, to sustain a club at all in those circumstances was equally miraculous and and then our rise from the Hellenic League through the Southern League and back to the conference and returning to Newport along the way um, is is a fabulous story and you know I think there are some quite interesting parallels with AFC Wimbledon and with Franchise FC except that in our case playing 80 miles away was something imposed on us by the actions of the FAW rather than owners Um, but yeah it was a, a dark time which we kind of emerged from uh, all the stronger, I think. And the best of times apart from beating the Borough? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the beating Borough, I think, is a pretty good indication of where the good times have been. You know, those cup runs that we've had since being back in the league have just been insane. Um, yeah, beating Middlesbrough to play Man City was an astonishing achievement. Um, but we've also ditched Leicester City out of the cup, beaten Watford. We took Newcastle to penalties last season. We came very, very close to beating Spurs in 2018, which I think was probably my favourite game as a Newport fan. The, the atmosphere yeah. was just electric. Um, and yeah, I, th- I mean, those cup runs, I think, have been something that um, have, have given 
uh, given Newport a really good reputation as a yeah a cup team and and a team that can really stick it to the big boys. Those cup games are what has made me want to go to Rodney Parade so much. I love the look of it. I can just tell it's my kind of place. And I'll walk across the transporter bridge and give you a truthful answer. But do Newport fans cherish it, or are there some that grumble about newer stadiums and all the rest? Well, uh, no. I mean, it, it, Rodney Parade has its own um, history as a as a rugby stadium um, yeah. and. You know, in the uh, kind of t- coming up to ten years that Newport have been playing there, I think we've grown to love it. Um, a lot of older fans, understandably, get misty-eyed about Somerton Park, where the original Newport FC played. But in this millennium, um, Newport have mostly played at Spitty Park, which was a, a council-owned athletics ground in the middle of a retail park with a, a running track around the outside and mm. strong winds blowing a gale across it, um, which was you know quite hard to feel any strong attachment to, and, and in comparison. <laughs> Rodney Parade is absolute heaven. It's a short walk from the pubs and the bars in the city centre. There's that mixture of old-fashioned terraces and modern seating, so there's something for everyone, and there's that kind of real lower league atmosphere to it. Mm. Uh, I guess the only negative is that the drainage is poor and we have to share with the, the Newport Gwent Dragons Rugby Club, so the pitch is virtually unplayable between December and March. Yeah. And um, last season we had to play a few games at Cardiff City's ground because things have got so bad, but... On balance, I mean, I, I love Rodney Parade. I think there's an awful lot going for it. And and yeah, I think for anyone who grew up watching football in, you know, uh, older stadia will we'll find that, yeah, there's something just really genuine uh, about the mm. ground and it's got all the kind of anachronisms that you want from a, a lower league ground. There are many people that listen to this podcast and read WSC that dream of supporter ownership. How has it been so far? I, I think any supporter-owned uh, club will say it's it's bloody hard work you know and that it's hard work especially for the volunteers who give up their time to be part of the board or to try and raise money but it's it's hard on the fans because I think you have to constantly remind yourself what are realistic expectations because you know you can't demand that the chairman sticks a million in to go and buy you a new striker or whatever you know that ultimately if that money is found for players then you're paying for it as supporters and so that I think changes expectations and it changes the narrative but I think there's something really healthy about that and it it does mean that not all of the time and not all Newport fans but I think on balance we are quite realistic about what we can achieve but having been the victims of shysters running the club and seeing where that can leave you I think Knowing that we we are fan owned, it's our we're in control of our own destiny is something that people really do value. So, having just missed out on promotion, what are your feelings about the more immediate future on and off the pitch, the coming season, and all the rest? Well, we've lost twice at Wembley in the playoff final last month against Morecambe and back in 2019 against Tranmere, um, and in both games, you know, there were controversial decisions that went against us. But I think that loss against Morecambe hit us particularly hard because I I think we could have handled promotion now, whereas we probably couldn't a couple of years back. But uh, I think as long as Mike Flynn remains the manager, I think we'll remain competitive in the fourth division. But if we were to be without him and on the crowds and the budget we have, I think our ambitions are perhaps a little bit more modest. But like I say, most Newport fans are probably just pleased to have a league club again. And if we can have the occasional cup run and enjoy the odd big day out and upset the big boys along the way, then I think most of us would settle for that. When you dream of Rodney Parade and going back in August, what do you dream of most? 
the Bovril, the walking up the steps, what kind of thing? Yeah, Bovril definitely features. There, there is just something about Rodney Parade and Bovril that, that go together. <laughs> but I think probably for me, it's sitting in the, the back row of the Hazel stand, which is the, the sort of very old fashioned stand that runs along one side with a, a terrace at the front and seats at the back. And I, I sit in the back row there with my two boys under a blanket with a thermos of hot chocolate. And I think sitting there with them and just enjoying live football again and that sense of things returning back to normal yeah that will feel like a big deal when it happens you've been listening to the when saturday comes podcast produced and edited by me daniel gray please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash when saturday comes which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies and please do join me andy and harry again next time for more vital topical and half decent chatter 